0: Joy to be together again to study God's good word that He's written and provided to us in our language. We have access to it. <clears throat> Church, the Word of God. We would be so blessed to know Him, to grow in Him. Um, thankful to be with you today. Grab your Bibles and turn with me to the first letter of John. First John chapter one. You'll find that if you're newer to the Scriptures in the very back of your Bible, after Second Peter and just before the end of Jude and then Revelation. John is writing to Christians in his day that he wants to encourage with the love and the certainty and the truth of God. Much of what John is writing in this letter is addressing false claims or teachings that are being put out there as true. They're being sold as, hey, this is what's right. And so he's writing these letters pastorally to believers to help correct, to reorient them to the truths of God. Um, And so what we're going to see today is John going deeper beyond how we're living, which is what we focused on last week. Claiming to know God, but walking in the darkness. Um, God who is light, and instead our actions kind of reveal that instead we're walking in the darkness, therefore we don't know God. To, to moving to our actual like state of mind and heart, what we claim to be. And so a right and clear view of sin and the forgiveness God brings for those who confess their sin and trust in Him is what's ahead for us today and in part two of this passage next week. 1 John chapter 1, 8 through 8-10. Lots to cover in just a few verses, so let's dive in. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His Word is not in us. In verse 8, when John says, if we say we have no sin, he's not saying that this person is claiming they've never sinned. That's actually what he's going to address in verse 10. That's super outrageous. He's going to get there. But here first in verse 8, he's the false claims that are running running around. Uh, were people not necessarily saying they didn't have a sin nature, but basically that they weren't committing sins any longer. In their view, somehow the anointing of God on their life meant that it it was behind them. The sin no more. And so, let's take a moment this morning and just be reminded of what the Holy Scriptures, what God says about sin in our lives what are the fundamental truths when it comes to sin and i mean i could preach for you know weeks on this but let me give us a couple quick bullet points number one all who are conceived of man and women and woman are born in sin king david said it well in psalm 51 5 behold i was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me Paul spoke of this reality and why this is in Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sin. This is talking about our federal head, Adam, our, our mankind's representative in the garden, who chose sin. And therefore, that original sin means for all who come after Adam in his life, sinful tendencies, desires, dispositions of our hearts by which we are conceived with it, we're born with it. So therefore, original sin, this, this seed we have by being Adam's offspring, is inherent in us. It is a morally ruined character. When Adam sinned, his inner nature was transformed by sin, By the sin of his rebellion, bringing him to spiritual death and depravity, which would then pass on to all mankind who would come after him. Just as we inherit genetic or physical characteristics from our, our blood parents, we inherit our sinful nature from our first parents, Adam and Eve. That's what Scripture teaches. Therefore, we're not sinners because we sin. A a better understanding is that we sin because we're sinners. To a degree, your infant child, your unborn child, has not committed a lot of sin yet, but they're not innocent. They're, They're conceived in guilt. They're conceived with a sin nature. Number two, clarity. Apart from Christ, we're dead in sin. 1 Corinthians 2.14 The natural person does not accept the things of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The natural person does not accept the things of God. The person in their flesh who is apart from Christ, who has not been awakened by God's grace to be given spiritual discernment. They, they reject the things of God. They're folly. They're nonsense. They're, they're, they're not a priority. They're not they don 't understand the, the, this is a description of our heart of stone, a natural, unregenerate heart is spiritually dead it 's not spiritually alive, physically alive, not spiritually alive. Those, Paul said it well, those who are in the flesh cannot please God romans eight eight even things they would attempt to do that are good are not good, they're not. They're, they're actually evil. The good that an unsaved man does is technically evil, according to Scripture, because its aim is something for creation, not for the glory of the Creator. Therefore, it betrays the one who's due the reason why we even live or do anything good. He's the standard. The mind of the flesh is the mind of a man apart from the indwelling Spirit of God. So a natural man has a mindset that does not, cannot submit to God. Ephesians 2.1, Paul spoke of this clearly in that very famous chapter. Outside of Christ, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Again, not physically dead yet, we're physically alive, but spiritually dead. Spiritual deadness, incapable of any life with God, spiritual life with God. Our hearts are blind and incapable of seeing the glory of God, 2 Corinthians 4, 4-6. through 6. Moreover, in terms of bearing fruit for God's kingdom, doing what pleases Him, Jesus was so clear in John 15, 5. Apart from me, you can do nothing. He's saying nothing good, nothing to the glory of God. That's what he means. Number three. Apart from Christ, we are enslaved to sin. So not only do we have a sin nature, original sin, we're born in sin, Not only are we spiritually dead and depraved, all we do is sin, but we live in sin. It's it's all we know. We're enslaved to it. 1 Kings 8.46 There is no one who does not sin. Romans 3.23 For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Bible speaks directly and clearly that man's nature... Man's natural will is not free, as sinful, prideful man wants to declare. We want to declare that we have a free will. When we study Scripture rightly, Scripture is clear that the unregenerate man, the man who's not saved in Christ, is bound in their sin. They're enslaved to sin. All they do is sin. They must be awakened with new life in order to how the Spirit to be spiritually discerning and therefore do what pleases God. Jesus teaches in John 8, the unregenerate person is a slave to sin. John 8, 34. Romans 6, 17 and 20, Paul says, the unregenerate are slaves to sin. Moving ahead, those who are saved in Christ are no longer enslaved to only sin. We are freed in Christ. We are given the Spirit. And because the Spirit's now on board, we are at war with sin. I've said for a long time, dead men don't struggle. Before you're saved in Christ, there's not real struggle. Because you just do sin. You love sin. You pursue it. But when you are awakened in Christ, when you are given new life in Christ, you, there now is a real struggle. The Spirit's on board to make war with the desires of your flesh. And that struggle, I'll often say to brothers and sisters who are really struggling with the struggle, is to remind them the struggle's good. The struggle means the Spirit's at work. Be scared when there's no struggle. When you're just all given to it. That, that's, that's when it's all bad news. Praise be to God, that by His amazing grace, He chooses to save many and bring us to spiritual life, to awaken what's dead, to give us the Spirit. No longer, therefore, enslaved to sin. There's a war that's happening. Paul speaks to it so well in Galatians 5. Specifically in 16 and 17, he says, I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing things that you want to do. There's a battle happening there that's real. And it will happen until you're in glory. Until the sin struggle is removed. Until we're brought into His new kingdom in glory. We read about in Revelation and other testimony of what the kingdom of god for those who trust in him is to is to be peter says well in first peter two eleven, beloved i urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul what does all this mean it means if you're not saved not born by the spirit You haven't trusted Jesus with your life. You're still Lord of your own life. Then you are still in your sin, enslaved to your sin, guilty for your sin before the Holy God. And nothing you can do can save you. You can't get cleaned up enough to meet God's holy standard. Only by His grace in your life to give you saving faith will you confess your sin and turn to Jesus to to die to self and trust your life to Christ to be your Lord and Savior. Live the rest of your days for His glory and no longer your own. But if you are saved by God, then first you humbly admit your fleshly struggle with sin. It's, It's one of the very early and needed parts of the gospel at work that you have God's given you finally eyes to see your sin clearly and see how wretched it is before a holy God. The Spirit at work in you means a humble disposition to recognize that you're a sinner saved by grace and now at war with sin and desperate for the Spirit to be at work, desperate for the Word of God to instruct you and shape you and teach you truth and mold you desperate for the accountability of the church to be in your life, to walk with you, to practice to one another's, that you would ongoingly grow in your maturity and your sanctification, confessing sin, turning from it unto a life that honors God. As Christians, we do not claim to be without sin. It is one of the markers of truly being a Christian is we see our guilt and sin and therefore our need for a Savior. We, we are aware now in a way that we weren't before of the ongoing battle with sin and we're active in it. We walk with a humble dependence on God. Look to Him in all things that we would obey His commands, fight our flesh and turn from sin. True Christians do not practice sin in an unrepentant way as we talked about last week. We don't claim to know God and then walk in the darkness, walk in denial of His commands, do what we want in an unrepentant way. No, the Spirit at work means we will see our sin, confess our sin, and turn from it. You cannot truly be saved and set free and know God and then walk in an unrepentant, lasting walk in the darkness. But when you do sin as a true believer... The Spirit at work means you're disgusted with it. You, you confess it. You do things that you would never thought you would do. I love that journey for our church over the last couple decades. People will come and visit and see a testimony on the screen or from, shared from the stage, and they'll look at each other and go, Can you believe these people are saying this stuff to a room full of people? Never say that to anybody. The depth of that, the wickedness of that, the embarrassment of that. One of the great signs that you are free from what used to have a total grip on you is your ability to talk about who you used to be in sin and now who you are in Christ. You're not ashamed of it anymore. Why Because you see it as linked to the old man? It's no longer a part of your new identity in Christ. With it is the most amazing freedom and new beginning you'll ever know. Now, with all this under our belt... We must see that people who claim to be without sin are deceived and not saved because they're lacking the evidence of the very humble repentance that comes with salvation. The sinner saved by grace sees their sin and God's grace clearly and turns from their sin instead of denying it or making excuses for it or remaining in it. It is one of the evidences of their salvation. Jesus highlights this with a powerful parable. Luke 18, you probably know it well, but let's hear it with fresh ears this morning as I read. Just picture the story with me. Luke 18, 10-14, Jesus says, There's two men that went into a temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. I want you to see quickly in this individual pride. Pride to say, look at what I'm doing. These things are good. Surely in these ways I'm better than that guy or these people. Like I'm feeling good about where I'm at. And in opposition to this, now look at the testimony of the tax collector. The tax collector standing far off, he says, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified. The tax collector was justified before God. On the outside, it looks like the Pharisees got his life together. He's producing all this stuff that looks awesome. The tax collector is not very liked for what he does for his job, and he's looking really guilty. But the, the tax collector has true confession of sin and a repentance to, to, to lean on God alone for what he needs. Whereas the Pharisee is leaning on his performance, pridefully ignoring where he's missing the mark. In First John 1, through 5-7, as we looked at last week, John highlighted the false claim that someone can know God and be good with God and yet still practice unrepentant sin. This is revealing their broken, inauthentic testimony of how one lives. So that's looking at their lifestyle, what they do. But now in these next few verses today, John's revealing the broken testimony based on what someone claims to be. In other words, the person who says, I'm good or I'm not guilty, is deceived, and, and the true testimony of the gospel is not in them. So he's moving from just the outward actions of walking in the darkness to really the state of the heart, and, and the evidence of, 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 of where a person even, of their actual like verbal testimony even, and the reality of that according to Scripture. A lack of honest admittance of our struggle with sin and the flesh is a damning practice. For those so caught up in deception and pride, they're unwilling or unable to be honest with themselves or others about where they're really at. Christian, hear me so clearly today. When the Holy Spirit the Word of God or a beloved brother or sister in Christ helps point out that you're in sin. If you belong to Jesus, if you're awakened to the Spirit, you don't deny it. You don't make excuses for it. You don't try to justify it. You are, in Christ, joyful to get to identify it and then begin to do work with it. Because you know in the Gospel what it was like to have been enslaved to sin and, have to, and only to do sin. You now have the power of the Spirit to see the sin, to do business with the sin, to turn from the sin, and you rejoice in that opportunity. Therefore, there's a humility in you before your Lord, like the tax collector, and not a pride in you that wants to look to your resume and to what you've done and all these things, like the Pharisee. We love Christ. And because we love Christ, we hate sin. And, we're, and so therefore we're humble and we're quick to do business and repent of it, confess it. We make that our priority. We don't let it fester. We don't go get busy with other stuff. We do business. The person who denies that they're in sin, who just wants to deflect to other things or other people, is self-deceived. This is John's sobering clarity. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. This is similar to what we said about the person who claimed to know God, but practiced sinful disobedience to God's law. Claiming to know God and then walking in the darkness makes that person a liar. They're claiming to be someone they're not. They're attempting to deceive others. That's that's their deception. But watch this. Claiming to be without sin is just plain lying to yourself. It is self-deception. Look with me. Skip down to verse 10. John shows a greater level of deception, a greater heresy, a greater false truth that some would be so bold to proclaim. He says, if we say we have not sinned, We make him a liar, and his word is not in us. These are the ones who would go so far to claim they've never sinned. The problem with this claim is that it's at direct odds with what God has revealed or claimed about who they are. So now to say, I've never sinned, the whole thing is bust. Therefore, that proclamation is to then say that God is a liar about the state of your fallen nature and sin. This is worse. Because now you're not just lying about yourself. You're calling God a liar. And Scripture is clear. Hebrews 6.18 It is impossible for God to lie. God is truth, as we've studied already. So what He says, what He declares... What is, is truth. Anything else you're trying to cling to, find definition in, as opposed to him, is the deception, is the lie. It is the height of sinful arrogance to say that we know how something works better than he does. Slow down, think about that. And think about the times that you've been there. Maybe even the current ways that you're living there. Let the Holy Spirit do work on you today with that. When John says here, His word is not in us to claim that never sin. It's to state the person is, is without true discernment. Or, or even true belief in God's holy word. While they may... Have divine revelation. They may they may possess it. They may know it. They may have even memorized the words. Maybe speak it really clearly. They're devoid of God's revelation at work in them, of the truth going to work because they're still living in the deception. There are many who know a lot about scripture. People in other religions. People in man made. False stuff, maybe even people who claim Christ in Christian faith, and and they know a lot, maybe way more than you or me. But the key is is the Holy Word in them. That see John's focus. It's not in them. In other words, the truths of God are not at work in them, convicting, mobilizing. And growing them. Back to verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. To be deceived is to be lost. John uses the word deceived here in the Greek, which means to, to wander, to be off the right path, if God is truth, then to be deceived is to be without God at the helm of your life. So when he says the truth is not in us, we have to understand this is not like a puppy who wandered from your house. He's out in the neighborhood. He's going to come back. It's not that. No, it's, it's someone who's lost at sea, has no anchor no mooring they're, they're without a light to show them the way they're without life of God the person who thinks this way reveals the state of their actual spiritual reality they're enslaved to sin and therefore deceived when they think they know what is true when they don't have the truth the truth is God they do not have God Therefore, they're lost in deception. Only with the gift of spiritual life are we saved. Only when God's word is implanted into us do we know the truth and live the truth. James 1.21 Put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness The implanted word, which is able to save your souls. The absence of the implanted word, the word of truth, means we're lost in the darkness. We're living a life of deception. And can I just say here, this is so key, your feelings are so damning. Proverbs 14, 12. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death so much of our struggle often is because we are giving way too much credit to our feelings or our circumstances than to god our faith is or our claimed faith is thrown aside because we're not trusting what his word says is good and true we are looking to something else to rationale to 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 make a decision to 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 leverage the situation It's the way, This way seems right to me. But Scripture says clearly it's the way to death. Not feeling guilty, not feeling bad, not feeling like it's a big deal, like we did something wrong, doesn't matter. Hear me say that. Doesn't matter. What matters is what God knows to actually be true. Not how you feel, but what is the truth about your situation as He has revealed it, As is according to him. This is where the scripture is so key. This is where a plurality of mature brothers and sisters around you is so key that you don't reject that and stand on your own. Over 20 years of gospel ministry, I've sadly seen many I dearly love turn to justify their position, their sin, their claim that they feel they're good with God because they feel that they're right in what they're doing. But the infinite, eternal, and worthy God is the one who defines what is right and what is good. Not you, not me. To deny what God declares is true is to be self-deceived. This we must do business with. You don't get to throw that off. Um, I've gone this long. No, stop. The Lord is at work in you today. To not do business with that is to close your eyes in a bright room and say, I don't see the light. It's so dark. God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. First John 1.5 If we want to know the truth, we must look beyond our feelings to the God of truth, His revealed word. It is as simple as that. It's as simple as that. You don't need to go chase other opinions. You don't need to go chase other tools. You trust that God's word is good, it's sufficient. And you let it lead you, teach you, direct you. Now, is there struggle along the way? Yes, for all of us. There's a reason why Proverbs 3. Is so quoted so often by us to each other because we need a good and real reorientation to gospel truth a lot. Let me, let me read you this passage that you probably know by heart. Hear it with fresh ears this morning Proverbs 3 5 through 7. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Not with part of it and then I trust me or my family tradition or my favorite person or whatever. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. Our fallible, limited view is worthless compared to His perfect, holy, eternal view. In all your ways, acknowledge Him and He will make straight your paths. Not in some of your ways. Do it His way in all of your ways do it his way you tired of the crooked street that you're back and forth on get to all of your ways doing his way not just some of them yeah but pastor that means like my plan's not going to go this way or my house is going to look different i kind of like it the way it is and yeah that's a lot of your own understanding that's a lot of your own reasoning we belong to him let's do it his way Be not wise in your own eyes. People say, it's not going to make sense to me, and I don't like it. Fear the Lord. And turn away from evil. God is wise. His ways are best. May it be so in each of us. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Church... Meditate on that for a moment. It is so sobering but good. Instead of prideful denial, God's will is that we are desperate for humble confession and repentance when sin comes into view. We don't deny it. We don't excuse it. We don't say it's not there and be deceived. We do business with it. We call it what it is. And therefore we move into verse 9. Look with me. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It is here that we will finish today and probably spend all of next week on this very famous verse that needs great help and understanding. Let's do business with this idea. One of the clearest places we see this command that we are to confess our sins, improper to deny them, proper to do business with them rightly. John shows us here the opposite of the prideful, deceived person who will not admit their guilt or confess their sin. They go so far to even deny it. The person who truly knows God, who is reconciled to God, has a God-empowered conviction to not hide sin or excuse it, to not try to cover it up and move on, but it is actually their joy to confess it, to admit clearly what it is, so that they can turn from it. So that, they, so that they're done with it. Why? Because I love God and I love His ways. I don't like my ways anymore. That life was a mess. They do this because their aim is to honor God. They do this because their joy is in God, not in their circumstances anymore proverbs 28 13 whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper are you are you currently concealing sin not dragging it into the light not confessing it hear god's words so clear you will not prosper but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy David said in Psalm 32, 5, I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Church, the word confess means to agree together with. Confession is a truthful and humble admittance. To be humble to see yourself rightly, to see the situation honestly, truthfully, and to speak of what it actually is. It's the opposite of the puffed up, prideful, deceived person who puts mask on, covers it up, is content with it being in the darkness. We don't have a truthful view of things when we're in the darkness. When we drag it into the light, we get to speak about it, deal with it as it really is. Confession is admittance that agrees with God who is truth, what something is. To agree together with. When we truly confess, we're saying, I am not lying to myself nor about this. I'm admitting it is what it is according to God's holy standard, not mine or something else. Confession is acknowledging, I have sinned. It's agreeing with God that you did it and that you're, and that you're guilty for it. It's standing before the judge or the highway patrolman or your parents or your brother or sister in Christ and admitting that you did it. I I am guilty of doing this. You're not trying to paint a story on it. Make it into something that's kind of not. It is standing before God or another person declaring, This is sin. You call it sin. I'm calling it sin. I'm saying out loud, I sinned. Our sin is is deceiving and our flesh wants to live in the dark and in the lies so it's super important that as blood-bought christians we want to expose our sin to the light we want to be honest about what's happening or is happening because we love jesus we don't want to be in the darkness living a lie and satisfying the flesh we bring it into the light by declaring what it really is. When the truth is in us, we don't want lies, deception. Even, watch this, when the truth is hard, we still choose truth because we belong to Jesus. We love God more than ourselves. More than our situation. We don't see how desperate we are for the good news of Jesus without first seeing the depth of our sin. This is why we love people well in telling the gospel that it's the good news is not good news without the bad news. You have to understand the reality of your sin, to see the beauty of the Savior. Anytime we're tempted or guilty of hiding our sin, making excuses for our sin, we're not honoring God. We're not walking in God honoring righteousness. Again, hear hear John's point again. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us all our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We need to be regular in admitting our sin before the Lord. It is a great gift to get to fight sin and no longer be enslaved to it. To deny the practice of confession is to make a bed for your sin to stay. Let me ask you, do you practice confession regularly? Do you see it as a gift? Or is it some weird religious duty? You really hate it when you got to go there. I would argue, when I have a right view of my enslavement to sin, I had no ability to do war with sin. And I remember that. And the fact that I have spiritual discernment and the truth at work to get to a call, a lie, a lie, to call what is gross, gross, and to do business with it, to be done with it, and then to turn to it under what honors God, that is a great gift. The world looks at confession and repentance as weakness. Why? Because they love the Darkness. Christians look at it and those who practice it well as strength. Why? Because it exudes maturity. It exudes confidence in Christ. My identity is in Him, not in my performance. My love is for Him, not for my idols. And and here it is. A great way to. I asked you, how are you doing at being regular with confession? Is Is that what you're known for? And there it is. There's the way you really do business with that is to go to some of the mature believers in your life, not. Not mom, not, not your best friend who tells you everything you want to hear, not whatever. You go to your mature believers in your life who are going to tell you what, you, what is true, no matter what it costs. And you ask them, do you see in me a testimony of being humbly regular and practicing confession of sin and turning from it? Or do you see in me a pride that is just so slow to get there? Ask. Do business with it. Go chase this down. You don't go ask that question. You don't do business with that. You are purposefully tucking this whole thing under the rug. It's so helpful to do that because we can be very self deceived to think, oh, I do that well. No, ask. And be humble and ready to listen. Let them love you enough to point out where you could grow, maybe where that could round out, maybe some of the things that they could be praying with you in. Let the Holy Spirit who's at work in mature Christian plurality around you do its work, because the truth's going to be revealed there. You might be deceived by yourself, but that group of mature Christians is not going to be deceived together. Holy Spirit's going to bring Good unity according to the Word. I see mature Christians, Bible-committed Christians, because you can go find people that are going to tell you what you want to hear. You go find that group. You can even sadly go find that church. People who claim to be devoted to God and His Word and aren't. They're devoted to itching ears and filling seats and becoming the thing in town and doing fun stuff. We do fun stuff. (laughs) The glory of the Lord. Amen. One of the great gifts of God in regards to confession is that we don't just do it privately. We involve brothers and sisters. James 5.16 Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is great power and it's working. This is a beautiful gift of God that we don't go at this alone. It's, it's, it is one of my favorite things. That w- One of the things you should see in more mature Christians is a, a real dependence on others, a joy to be transparent with others, to walk in community, to invite others in. Why? Because they learned the great blessing that it is. Because I can be self-deceived. you love jesus you don't want to be tempted and slip back you you so therefore you bring an army to go to war true christian accountability says if we belong to jesus and all this is for him then i don't go at it alone i don't go at it privately because here's the reality your sin that you're stuck in the mask you're wearing that affects us all in many ways that we might not even see or understand I I grew up in the church I've been around a lot of this for a long time I've grown up in circles who really didn't practice Christian accountability as it should be Here's, here's the defining point true Christian accountability means you give others exposure to your real life it's not you and I meet once a week over coffee and I tell you what I want you to hear how many Christian accountability groups have you been essentially that are that the only accountability that's happening is based on what you tell them. You know how, you know how you're really accountable to my life is I actually show you it. I, I give you the keys to it. So I don't get to deceive you to tell you what, what I want you to hear, what I'm not ready to do business with. I remember. I remember being a teenager, caught up, leading in a youth group, getting caught up in a particular sin, gross before the Lord, and you know just being caught up in it and and thinking it was good calling what was evil good giving reports to my leader I'm doing good totally lying about it finally got caught and the good news is where the Lord was at work in my life is I actually saw it as good to have been caught because I was able to really then have some accountability and turn from it instead of jumping headlong into it as some people sadly do and, and to now get to walk out, what, that wasn't real accountability. Because I was just telling them what I wanted them to know. To actually have brothers and sisters where we do life together and we let each other in. Why? Because don't let me be deceived on this thing over here by myself. Love me enough to take me where I need to go. we keep our sin and struggles to ourselves. we often get used to making excuses as to why we're not turning from it. We get used to the smell of the stench. We grow accustomed to the itch of the infection. But when we invite others in, we build an army to help us fight against it. So I just ask you, who do you go to when you're fighting sin? Who have you invited in to help you identify sin and confess of it rightly? We all need people we can walk with. Christian maturity means we're doing life in the church in this way. Now, will we have temptation to sin? Yes. Will we have moments of slipping into sin? Yes. But what we do at that point is so critical. We have to drag it into the light. To say to each other and to the Lord, the temptation is strong, the lure is lurking. Help me fight. Help me be reoriented to the gospel. Don't leave me alone. One of the great evidences of truly belonging to Christ, who is the light, is our practice of confessing sin and dragging it into the light. The temptation to satisfy the flesh and not the spirit by putting on a mask, being more concerned with what others think than what God thinks, is toxic. Why? Let's, let's do this real quick. Why do we often choose the lie or the mask instead of confessing the truth about the sin? Two quick big things come to mind. Idolatry, which means you value something more than God and you're fighting to protect it, which is the worst. you got to see the lostness in that. Or fear of man. You value other people's opinion of you more than God. These things reveal immaturity in us that's not grounded in a joyful, fulfilled identity in Christ. All the more reason why we need the Word, the Spirit, and the church to be involved When we're more motivated to hide sin instead of expose it, you likely still feel like you have something to prove. You're, you're likely caught up in a sinful performing. And that's just not, see with me today, that's not the gospel that work in you. That's not identity in Christ. That's you putting on the old jersey. You know, that wretched, foul, sweat-filled, You walk in the room and it's on the other side of the room and everything reeks. That's the thing you're putting on. Throw it in the trash. Put on Christ. Dive into His Word. Let the church come into your life to go to work, to get to that joyful place of confessing your sin. Your flesh is telling you, the world is telling you, you're only going to be worth anything if you perform, if you earn if you make people think a certain way about you. The gospel says you are accepted based on Christ's performance for you alone. And a true Christian rests in that to then get to do work with where sin's at work. So we, we turn from it. We move from it. Do you get that that's the goal? I'm not, I'm not going to really do business with this if, if I'm... Barely looking at it. And, and, it's, and I keep it out of sight. The goal is to be done with this. So let's bring it in the light and let's get the help and the accountability so that it's done. It's gone. Confession is important because it leads to repentance. and That is the testimony of the Christian. You can't do real repentance without confession. Let's talk about definition of both of those real quick. We use those words a lot. Confession is agreeing together with admitting the sin is sin. You're calling it what it is. You're not cloaking it, you're not it's admittance. Truthful full admittance. Repentance is a new direction. No longer doing what was sin, turning unto what glorifies God. You won't repent unless you confess it first. Confession is the first step in repentance. Now, hear this clearly. If you are in unrepentant sin, if you do not confess it as sin, and or if you do not turn from it. It's not just enough, it's not enough to just say you're sorry, let's move forward. No, it needs to be confessed and you need to actually turn from it. What am I going to do different than honors God? Be accountable to that road that's different. It's not enough to say I have a problem or to just say where you're wrong. You have to turn from the sin in faith. This is God's work in us. This is the this is work of the Spirit to mature us. This is why we get to see people who are intolerable in their sin. You run into people who were the worst back in the day. And, and you're like, who are you? Christ is at work in me. I'm a new man. I'm growing. I'm, I'm humble. I am. Man, I'm, I was a mess, but I'm so sorry that what you experienced in me back then. True confession leads to real repentance. You don't, you're not satisfied with not honoring God. When our faith is real, when it's at work properly, our biggest goal is to honor God. Our biggest goal is not what's fair. Not what your flesh really wants, it is for Christ to be glorified. If you're catching yourself fighting for what's fair, or for what you really want, do business with that. No, 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 what needs to be coming out of your mouth is, I want to honor Christ. That's what I want. That's where I want to get. My flesh is really wanting to cling to this, but no, no, what Christ in me means, I want Christ to be glorified. That's the goal. Help me get rid of talking about fear and what my flesh wants. Oh, how big this is. That we have a true, humble remorse for our sin. That we see it so clearly and want nothing to do with it. Christ in you means you you no longer snuggle up to it. You, You grab it by the hair and you drag it into the light. Your favorite people are those who love you enough to help you identify it and to make war with it so that you honor God and not yourself. Be very concerned when you are turning away the people in your life who will speak that truth to you most boldly to go snuggle up to the people who are just going to tell you what you like to hear. The true Christian who is saved by Christ walks in faith and confesses their sin. Matthew 3:6: They were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Acts 1918, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. I'm not defined by that stuff anymore. I'm not looking for it to fulfill me or give me pleasure. I have Christ. I'm able to be honest with my struggle with this, so I want to turn from it. I don't want it anymore. I want God to be glorified. One of the real sweet evidences of this at work, I love it, when a brother or sister gets to this place, I encouraging them, hey, go, go back to your spouse, go back to your family, sit with them, confess what this is, don't make excuses share with them your longing, your plan to do what honors God. Bring it into the light. Be okay with Go there. D- don't kind of confess it and then I'm going to go deal with it over here. Let it out. Do business with it. People dealing with real, real gross, real wicked sin, maybe Deep fraud or addiction or infidelity. And I mean, if I bring this out, my whole life's going to change. And it's like, but think about what your life is by staying with it. Let the light of Christ begin to do its work now. Don't wait. Walk in truth. For He is your prize. Sure, Could there be consequences? Sure. Could you have to go to jail? Sure. Walk in the light. Because Christ is better. Because His truth is real. Not your thought that, oh, I'll be able to be around for my kids, so let's keep... No, no. like He is faithful and just. Look with me at the next part of the verse. I love this, church. This is so rad. So rad. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Here's what's really interesting about this verse. How often you've read it, how easy it is to run right to God's gracious work for forgiveness and completely miss His faithfulness and His justice. And so that's why we're going to finish looking at those next couple words and deal with all the forgiveness part next week. All right? Why? Watch this. He is faithful. He is just and therefore worthy to be praised. He's faithful. Let's look at that first Psalm eighty-nine, one through eight. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. My with my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever in the heavens. You will establish your faithfulness. You have said, I've made a covenant with my chosen one. I've sworn to David my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord, a God greatly to be feared in the counsel of the holy ones, and awesome above all who are around him? O Lord, God of hosts, who who is mighty as you are, O Lord? with your faithfulness all around you. 2 Timothy 2.13 tells us that God is faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. We must see rightly that God is always faithful to keep His covenant promises. Hebrews 10.23, Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, For he who promised is faithful. Christian, are you trying to weigh the circumstances of confession or what you do to honor God? Hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? He who promised is faithful. Everything else you're going to hope is going to bust. Only God is faithful. Hold fast to the hope we have in God without wavering. This is the foundation of our hope. It's not circumstances. It's not others. It's not ourselves. It's God. Think with me for a moment how unreliable other people are. You don't all have to say amen at the same time. As much as you love them, As close as you are, as committed as you are, people are still going to let you down. They still miss deadlines. They still don't meet expectations. They often don't fulfill their promises. Not perfectly, like only the Lord does. He's faithful, believer. Only God is true to His word every time. Do you know that at your core? So that when you're at that crossroads, when you're contemplating what do I do here? You you walk in truth, you walk in the light, you trust God. To lose sight of God's faithfulness is to lose sight of the living hope, the enduring faith. Look not to your circumstances, Christian, look to God you trust in God hope in God rest in God because of his faithfulness we who belong to Jesus trust in Christ and believe with enduring faith that God keeps all his promises 2 Corinthians 1.20 all the promises of God find their yes in him praise God that he's faithful for the completed work of Christ To bring forth the new covenant, by which we're a part of, forever secured in. Some struggle with the emphasis of God's justice here. Look at the verse again with me. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Some struggle with the emphasis of God's justice right next to the fact that He's forgiving guilty people. That doesn't sound like a very just judge, right? You were in a court case with a loved one, and the judge said, oh, I'm gonna, we're going to forgive the guilty guy who killed or raped your family member. We're like, that, is, that judge sounds like a terrible judge. Not very just judge, right? So, so we kind of see that together, and we forget something very important about the gospel. The perfection of God's justice, perfect, is carried out in the fact that the punishment due His people who are forgiven by Jesus work on the cross. The punishment was rightly and fully given. Jesus took it on in our place. Justice was fully served. God is just to forgive His people because the just punishment and due us was put on Christ in our place. Romans 3, 23-26 For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is, Christ, that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins, it was to show His righteousness at the present time, perfectly doing what's right, so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Theologian John Gill says it this way, God is naturally and essentially just in Himself. And he is evidentially so in all his works, particularly in redemption by Christ. Praise God that he is faithful and he is just. In my time of study this week, it hit me so hard. Not only that God is perfectly faithful and perfectly just, And therefore, forgiving his elect when they truly confess and repent of their sins because of what Christ completed for them. He loves faithfulness and he loves justice. He loves forgiving his beloved. Not because of what it does, he loves it because of who he is. He's worthy to be praised. have to see forgiveness rightly to understand that we're forgiven in Christ for some who are a part of the church is a hurdle they've not fully ever crossed This partial understanding of the gospel so we got to come back next week look at forgiveness and then therefore what that means in our lives I'm so looking forward to what that will be today as we turn to the table May we not deny that sin is real and that we're at war with it. May we humbly confess our sin, no longer make excuses for it. May we worship God for His faithfulness and His justice, for He is worthy to be praised. At that Passover meal that was so symbolic for God's people for so long, pointing to the sacrificial lamb, pointing to the new covenant, Jesus Himself, God to take on flesh to come fulfill what was promised to make a way lifted from that passover meal a glass of wine and unleavened bread all the wonderful symbolism in his perfection of his narrative throughout scripture and what it has meant and what it will be in eternity gives them assigns them in this formal moment of the church church in all the ways that were not very formal We must be obediently formal when it comes to the Lord's Supper. We must obey our Lord and do this in His way unto His glory. Here's what this is at the tables around the room are unleavened bread and wine. And what these symbols mean is His bread represents His body that was broken, and the wine His shed blood to make a new covenant between God and His people for those who would trust in Jesus, confess their sin and be saved, to, to die to themselves and that Jesus is now their Lord, that the Spirit's on board and at work, that they live to honor and obey Him, that they've been saved because of Christ. God intends this to be a public testimony, one of the symbols that point to Jesus' death in our place. And so you who are non-believers, who have not yet trusted your lives to Jesus, this is not for you to participate in. It's not your testimony yet. It's for you to observe. It's for you to see that none of these people have earned anything to be saved. God has mercifully, graciously saved them, given them saving faith. They've confessed their sin. They've trusted their lives to Jesus. They're growing in Him. And our deep prayer is that it would be God's will that you too would confess your sin and be saved in His perfect time. We'd love to talk with you more about that. We'd love for you to continue to come and grow in God's truths unto that being your testimony. Not only that you would dine with us in the time He ordains for us until we're gone, but forever with Him at the feast beyond all feast. Glory to God. Church, this is for you to obey Him, to to do this practice, to to. Have this public testimony. But Scripture is clear. You should not do this if you are in unrepentant sin. If you have things that you know are against God's holy will for you, that you and your arrogance and your pride and your flesh are stained with, you should not falsely testify of the power of Christ to give you what you need to turn from that. In your flesh, you're staying with it. You need to do business with whatever that is. You need to confess it before God and turn from it. I would say go far to invite accountability in your life that you would not be back to it the next time you're at the table. And if you do confess it, and if you are done with it, then dine. And know that you're forgiven, not because of your performance, but because of who Christ is in you. Also, you're not to participate in the Lord's Supper if you're not in unity with your brothers and sisters. This is meant to be a united testimony. It's done with the church in this formal setting as a united testimony to a watching world that Christ in us means we forgive each other. We don't hold grudges. We don't stay at at odds with each other. We submit to God's Word. We we, we look to have unity, have nothing between. So if you've got business to do with a brother or sister, go do that business. Do it today, do it this hour, do it ASAP, so that you can return to the table and have a testimony that's not um, out of line with what the gospel testimony is meant to be. God is good. By His grace we're saved. He's worthy to be praised He's done what we could never do. And it's a joy to know Him, to walk with Him in the light, to grow together as the family of God for His glory and for many others' good. Amen? Pray with me. Um, Today, uh, you are going to be served the bread, church. So as you go to the table, you can take one of the cups of the wine and hold your hand out. One of our hosts will serve you a piece of the unleavened bread. Uh, We're trying to move past the baggies and all that waste that comes with it, but still love you well and how that's being done. So let's pray, let's worship, let's go to the table as we're ready. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this time together. We thank you, Lord, for the work you're doing in and through us. I love so many sweet moments to hear Uh, and to see and to experience myself where there's real conviction, where there's um, opportunities to to repent and to turn unto what honors you. That we truly would not be the Lord of our own lives. That we would not um, be testifying falsely in that we're trying to say we are belonging to the Lord, but then not obeying and not walking in the light. That where our sin is, we would confess it, we would turn from it. And I'm excited to see the work. I'm excited to see the hurdles that we'll overcome for some many decades or a lifetime of, of struggle in a certain area, Lord, that, that it's in your perfect way, it's time to turn and be done and to grow and to mature unto what glorifies you. That that would be our testimony. Uh, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for Christ's substitution in our place. Thank you for... Um, the opportunity to gather together in unity this morning in praise, in prayer, in study of your word, and now in the Lord's Supper. I thank you for our guests, those who are seeking to know the truths of God, that they would feel loved and, and known and, and uh, by your sovereign will, become part of your eternal family and, and our church, Lord. And What a joy. Here we are. Be glorified. You are a good Father who has done an amazing work. We praise you all that you are. In Jesus' name we pray.